Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, it's Ellie. In this episode of Pop Parenting, we are finally discussing Iona from Pity and Pink, one of my favorite characters, and we're delving into the importance of wise elders in the absence of healthy parents to both a family and to society at large. Here we go. Um, okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome, everyone that's joining us on Facebook. Um, it's really awesome to have you all. This is our uh, our fourth or fifth installment, but our second one um, on Pretty and Pink. Um, so, Abba, I'm just going to turn off your video just so that we can make sure that the bandwidth is good and so people can see us both. Um, okay, this is so exciting. We are uh, deep into Pretty and Pink. Um, Avram, um, by the way, I'm almost halfway through your book, so that's super exciting. Um, what's, uh, what's the response been? For those who don't know, if you can check it out on the screen, that's Avram's new book, Where Would You Like to Start? Um, can you give us just an on one foot on the book, and then I'm going to say why myself, without a therapy background, um, meaning I'm not a therapist, not that I haven't been to therapy, but, um, why I'm really appreciating it. So what's, what's the on one foot on your new book? The gist of the book was uh, my late supervisor who died in 2010 was, has been do, was doing this work for 40, 50 years and was very concerned about the state of therapy moving towards a very uh, brief, quick fix, uh, symptom focused therapy and felt that uh, fundamental problems weren't being addressed in what he was seeing in his office and what he was seeing at the university where he was teaching. And he was concerned that the new crop of therapists that were coming up wouldn't know what to do with real problems. They were okay with symptoms. They, they wouldn't know what to do with problems. And then what happens if you don't address a root problem in your family, it repeats itself in different ways. So the symptom changes. So alcoholism might become shopping being addiction or something, but you're not addressing the problem. Yeah. So he, so I said to him, you know, David, um, one of my favorite books is Letters to a Young Poet. What if we had discussions like Letters to a Young Poet, but in this case, it would be Skype calls between a young family therapist and you are the wise elder. And he loved it. And we went ahead and unfortunately he died before the book could be finished. The book was shelved. Uh, and then in 2017, his widow said, I think it's too important. Please go ahead and finish the book. Uh, I did, and the book is now on Amazon. Um, I think that, uh, it's, of course, it's great for therapists, but as you're discovering, David dropped so many truth bombs about marriage and grandparenting and wise elders. And also, just if you're curious about how families operate, the machinery of families and marriages, I think there's just a lot of great stuff. I, I don't think you have to be a therapist to appreciate what, uh, what's being spoken about. What, what, uh, what, what are you getting out of the book? So I think it's really interesting because in, even as an educator, um, there's so many great things in there. Like when someone comes to you with, a, with something that's going on, how do you listen to them at first, right? How do you create an environment for somebody to feel heard? Um, so I think if you're, for me, there's so much um, structural stuff, foundational ideas around, like you said, the mechanics of relationship, not just families, but the mechanics of relationship and also really how to be um like how to be a place to land for a person and what does that mean to be a support so for me it's been really fascinating to hear the questions and the answers and that relationship between the two of you that model and also um you know these beautiful um essential pieces of how to allow yourself to really be in relationship with another person and understand what that means. I think it's, it's a really fascinating insight, insightful look in. So thank you. It's great. Great. Super. All right. Pretty in pink. We're talking about Iona, which I couldn't you know, be more excited about. She was my style icon. Kind of still I is. have to say, I was watching it yesterday just to refresh myself. I bought the uh, John Hughes pack. I think I sent you a picture yeah. on uh, Facebook. Uh, and um, I did not know one of my favorite 80s songs is in Pretty in Pink. And it isn't the psychedelic first. Which now, here's a, here's a quiz. Whoever's listening who knows Pretty in Pink, what is the second song in Pretty in Pink 
that is played in the movie after the psychedelic fur is pretty in pink? The second song. No, I'll give you a hint. The artist is from Britain and had great hair. That's like everyone in the 80s. That's not a clue. A, an amazing <laughs> guitar player. People don't know this, but he was an amazing guitar player. Still plays. He actually, he went on tour with Howard Jones a couple of years ago. Wouldn't it be good to be... Oh my gosh. Your... Nick Kershaw. Nick, I Nick couldn't Kershaw. believe John Hughes used Nick Kershaw in the film. Wow. Great song. That's, yeah. that's a great song. That's so good. Oh, that's beautiful. I actually ran across a couple of, um, you know, on Apple iTunes, you can get soundtracks, but sometimes if they haven't posted the original soundtrack, people actually like put them together and then post them on Apple as a, as the soundtrack. Um, so I was blown away how many movies there were like on some of these playlists. It was really cool. Yeah. Really awesome. Um, okay. So last week we talked about, we talked about Andy talked about her and her father. So for those of you, if you haven't seen Pretty in Pink, now you know you can get them all on Apple iTunes. In fact, my parents were saying, um, they were talking about our, our session last week and that my, uh, my stepdad hasn't seen any of those movies. So I told them they're on watch. They have to go now and get every single 80s John Hughes film available and watch them together. Um, so we talked about Andy. We talked about her relationship with her father. We talked about how a lot of the time Andy ends up parenting her father. Um, and that a lot of what was going on there was um, where you don't really understand. He doesn't seem like the ground in the, in the relationship. He doesn't seem like the foundation. Um, how do we move to Iona from here? Where do you want to start? Well, I think what's so interesting about um, the film is that John Hughes leaves the viewer, I think, um, with a big question mark, a big vacuous space to fill in what happened to Andy's mom. Um, and the viewer, I think the way Hughes did it was, the viewer gets to decide, is she, a, is she an evil person uh, or did dad do something? But, but there's just this big vacuousness space. And, and it's interesting for a woman who doesn't appear in the film at all, you don't know her name, she actually is very present in a lot of the surrogate relationships that Andy has. You can see it in how the father has completely fallen apart after his wife left um, him. Right. And so she's actually in the film a lot without ever seeing her. Okay. So um, I thought it would be interesting to, to tackle a very popular idea. I think a misplaced idea, but a popular idea. Um, it comes from a little bit of the world of attachment theory uh, that if you don't have a strong attachment with your parent, in particular a mother, that was John Bowlby's big idea, the, the, um, the father of attachment theory. With your mother, you're going to you're gonna be struggling for the rest of your life in some pretty fundamental ways. Now, I have not seen that completely bear out in all of the work that I have done over the past 30 years. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to understand who did, who did Andy replace this vacuum with? Her mother is gone, right? Because if you look at her in the film, again, we don't know. We just can use the film. The question is, is does Andy have it together or not? That's the question. Andy right. didn't have a mother. So according to certain theories, Andy should be a basket case. She should be, I don't know what, shooting meth in a corner somewhere and just like in a state of depression because her mother. But in fact, if you look at Andy throughout the film, she's one of the most mature, level-headed. Do you remember that scene with James Spader when he, he's leaning on her car and he's trying oh, to like sleep, sleep with her? And, yeah. And, and she just, he looks like a total ass. And she comes off mature, graceful, right? Not only that, so, so confident that she self-advocates in the face of one of the most popular kids at school and turns him down. Like that's, I, I always remember being so blown away by that. Like, where did she get the confidence to do that? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna admit something now, live. I can't believe I'm gonna do this. So this is, first, I don't think I've ever talked about this uh, live. This is not a proud moment of my life. Um, my parents moved in grade 11 to a, a, a town called Cote St. Luke, which was more of a, I guess, an upper, more upper middle class than where we were living. And we went to a school called Wager, which was a sort of a public school. A lot of Jews would go there. And we sort of knew the sort of cool Jews went there. I was very anxious about going to Wager. And I was friends with, I was friends with a group of people who were, we weren't cool enough to be misfits. We were just like nishta here, nishta there. We were just invisible. And every recess, I would leave through a certain door and pass the cool kids. And then some, for some reason, one of the cool kids focused on me. 
and would ask me to buy them chips every recess. They would have me go to a depreneur and buy them chips, uh, potato chips. And I would say yes. I had no Andy in me. I would say yes. And then she would scream at me that I got her the wrong flavor every Ellie, this went on for months. Now to make the story even more, and by the way, this is grade 11, 11. To make the story even more embarrassing, I never stood up for myself. It was my cousin who looked at this girl, this teenage girl and screamed at her and said, don't you ever treat my cousin like this and scream, and then it stopped. Um, so suffice it to say, I had both my parents. We had pretty good relationship um, and I had no backbone. So, uh, and you know, I mean, we all should have some Andy. Uh, in us if we are blessed to have a little bit of that. So the question of course is, what, what did Andy use? What foundational relationships did Andy use in a way as, as surrogates to her mother? Now I have to say one other thing. I've worked in my practice with people who um, have grown up with, um, with only one parent, either due to death or a parent who has left. I have seen rabbis play this role in, in a few families I can think of. Rabbis have played this role, other cler clergy. I have seen karate teachers play this role. I have seen, I have seen some therapists play this role. I have seen uncles and aunts play this role. What I'm hoping to get across in this talk tonight, Ellie, and using um, Iona as an example, is that it isn't the lack of so much of an attachment in the early years of our lives that is the uh, fate of one's childhood into uh, adulthood. It is the critical moment of where are the other wise elders? Where are the other wise elders in your life? And if you don't have those wise elders, you will feel the vacuum of your uh, absent parent. But if you do cultivate those wise elders, okay, you can live a very rich and meaningful life. I have lots of examples I could share, but we'll tackle Iona and, and go from there. Right. I love what you're saying on, on a couple of levels. Number one, it's so counterculture right now. I think that the idea of a wise elder or needing a wise elder is, is, is deeply counterculture at the moment. When you look into pop culture, when you look into what are the things that people value, um, it's youth, it's spontaneity, it's wackiness, it's, you know, all of those things. And, and, um, you know, everything about a wise elder doesn't even necessarily fit into those categories. And second of all, you know, Jewishly, we see so many incredible examples in our story um, in terms of wise elders. Like Moshe, it's really interesting. Moshe being left to drift in the river, right, is found by Pharaoh's daughter. And the first thing she does is make sure that there's another mommy to help him, right? Like, you know, this idea that it would be how could you even think that there there wouldn't be a need for elders to be there to raise to raise this child and and this whole idea of living in these tightly knit communities where there's aunties and uncles and you know and teachers and this and that like that where there was a community sense of raising kids that whole idea of it takes a village so I think on on so many levels when we look to our tradition we're built to have wise elders in our communities with teachers and rabbis and families. And on the other hand, count like culturally right now, we're living in a time where wise elders is not something that people are speaking out. No, it's, it's actually, it's the opposite. It's the software engineer with their whippersnapping skills at the age of 21 who developed their own app um, that is coveted. And the 51 year old developer, you know, you're just getting a little bit too old. And, and we really don't have this sense of what is someone over the age of 50? What, what can they teach me about C++ or about right. whatever the new, uh, you know, and, um, and it was one of David's biggest concerns before he died, that we are a culture devoid of uh, elders and wise elders, and that we lack the traditions and the scaffolding to raise young people with wisdom. Um, and <clears throat> I have to say, now, by the way, David is standing on the shoulder of giants here. Dr. Bowen, the founder of Family Systems Theory, one of his last concepts was called societal regression. And my God, if he was alive today, Bowen would look at what's happening in the world and he, he would see this term bearing fruit. The idea that um, the more anxiety in a society, the more immaturity you'll see in a society. Um, and you'll yeah. see it uh, right across the spectrum in terms of a whole bunch of societal problems. You know, you keep hearing people, you know, and it, it's really interesting how everyone turns to politicians to save us, right? If I elect this person, right, everything's going to be okay. If we could just have that person. 
And have we ever seen it? I haven't seen it one, one example, not one shred of evidence in my lifetime that that's true. In fact, I, I would say that politics, if anything, is, is about the power struggle of power. And, and, and of course, there's a place for it. There's a place for it. But if you don't have those wise elders in your family, people to turn to, to provide, to provide a North Star during those uh, stormy seas, right? Um, your life is going to be fraught with a lot of anxiety and, and, and a lot of misdirection. And uh, so I thought, let's just, we, we'll jump into it with Iona because I think Iona provides that for Andy. And I so, want to just throw in when you say this about politics, one of the most fascinating things that's happening in the U.S. right now is, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party, who's very much the party of tech startup, um, that they elected as their leader, like a 70-something-year-old um, guy. Like, there's, there's almost like they defaulted to um, wise elder, you know, and I, and I think that's really interesting that... Um, there's still a yearning for it. Even if you don't acknowledge it or culturally it's against the tide, there's still a yearning for somebody who has wisdom and experience. Well, I think what's interesting, and I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole too far because that is a rabbit hole. But I think if you listen to their more progressive base in the Democratic Party, they are not happy yeah. uh, with that leader and they're actually livid with who is leading the party. But I, I would say that there is a cultural hunger for wisdom, there is a reason why there are certain cultural icons, self-help gurus, right. that sell so many books, that sells, that they make so much money, um, because people are hungry for direction, they are hungry for meaning, uh, and for some reason, and I hear this quite a bit, you know, Ellie, I'll tell you something. You know how many young men in my office in their 30s are having some sort of a sexual thing with their partner, and I'll say to them, well, have you sat down with your dad? I just asked them what you know what what you can mine from your father's wisdom, and these guys look at me like I've fallen off a chair, hit my head. Like, why would I speak to my dad? My dad and I don't talk about anything. Young people, when I say young, I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm like people in their 30s, 20s. They don't they don't see their families as a source of wisdom, and calm yeah. and direction. Yeah. And, and I have to say, while I think it's better in the religious community, because I think it is, because I do think there's a hierarchy of rubs and this and that, it, it, it's also true there too. I mean, there's a general, I would call it almost a cultural zeitgeist or something, yeah. where there's a lack of this, um, this wisdom and that right now we covet what's young and we covet what's new. And uh, look, uh, good for Apple, because they are definitely cashing in on, uh, you know, and, and I'm a fan of Apple, so just to, okay. <laughs> let's, let's jump into Iona. Okay. I've, I've come up with a couple of points here in the film. Ellie, I think we'll just riff back and forth um, on some of these points. Uh, where I believe that Iona serves as a wise elder to Andy. Now, Ellie, maybe you want to set this up. Can you just very briefly, uh, Ellie, um, very briefly, who is Iona? What, what is her character? What is so Iona is the owner of this lovely record store that I'm sitting in here called Trax, right? The, one of her famous lines is, Trax, what do you want? Right? She answers the phone and she's, um, she's very like punk rock, kind of like seems like on the outside sort of crazy and unbound. She's always wearing these insane outfits. She's, um, but she's very kind of like, I guess like Chicago, but slash New York cool. Um, and she runs the record store where Andy works, um, where hangs out after school. Um, and it's kind of the setting for a lot of the, where the initial essential interactions take place in, in the storyline of the movie. Um, and she's really a, a kind of a mentor friend to Andy. And, um, and they have a very unique relationship in the movie. It's, it's interesting to watch when, they, when the two of them are on screen together. Um, it's quite beautiful. She's a little bit older than her and has I think, that kind of... I think about 15 years older because she makes a comment about Ducky where she's like, right. uh, I could be his mother. That's right. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a, a really unique relationship where Andy feels, you can see she always feels very comfortable and like she can simply be herself. Right. Right. So here's some of the, um, I would say some of the points in the film where I think as parents, we can mine something from how Andy um, deals with, uh, sorry, Iona deals with Andy's anxiety and fears. And I think that there's something for parents here that we can chew on, that we can think about. So the first one is, in the beginning of the film, um, 
Iona does this thing, and Ellie, I think you've seen, I try to do this in some of my talks, where instead of advice giving, I try to tell stories, and I do this with my clients all the time. I'll change the, I'll change the names, I'll, you know, but I'll share a clinical story with a client to suggest a, a life lesson, a way, a way through, based on someone else. Because when we hear someone else's struggle and how they went through it, there are things we can mine for ourselves. That's very different from saying to someone, do this, don't do that. Okay. Well, it's, a, it's also the Jewish way. Everything is through stories, right? It's right. always like, you know, oh, check this out. Look at what this person did. Right. A good midrash, right? We would say like, that's a good, yeah. Um, so here we go. So um, telling stories, not giving advice. So Andy wants to skip the prom. I don't know if you remember this. She's thinking, yeah. ah, proms are stupid. And, and Iona, I, I forget the story, but Iona uses a story. Oh, right. Do you remember the story that Iona tells Andy? Uh -uh about a friend of hers who has this dream. She skipped her prom, but she has this dream the rest of her life that she's oh, missing yeah. something, remember? And she's missing something. And then she looks at Andy with a little smirk and impish grin. <laughs> and she says, has she missed her prom, Andy? <laughs> right? You know. Now, what's interesting about that is, I think that when you tell a story, right? When you, when you tell a midrash, people can hear the lesson in the story because there's space to interpret it for yourself. A wise elder tells stories. A wise elder tells riddles. You can hear the lesson in that. It's very different than, Ellie, if I say to you, uh, quit your job. Now, you might listen to me, but you also might push back because it's too prescriptive. Okay? So I thought that was an interesting, uh, an interesting technique. Um, and, I, and you can hear people who are wise uh, do that. Yoda. Uh, talks and riddles and and and, right. um, and uh, other other elders use right, like the zen koan right like the zen master gives his student he says something the student has to like figure it out for 10 years that's right that's right and then and the the other thing is that uh, a good story when someone leaves a good story they are left to chew on the lesson for a while mm -hmm. it's not it's not quick medicine you have to sit there and think about what am I going to do with this? And then you make it your own. And anything that you make your own will stick longer than just following what someone tells you to do. So just something. Um, yeah. So I'll yeah. tell you something interesting, just in terms of um, script writing for movies. There's a really great TED talk by a guy who writes a lot of the scripts for Pixar. And he said one of his um, like core concepts when he writes a script, script is no one likes a free lunch. Like if you give them too much information, the audience checks out. Whereas right. if you give them just enough information to sort of start to try to imagine if I was in that situation, what's going on, suddenly there's this deep emotional engagement because they have to fill in the gaps. And so right. I think you're right. The, the, the possibilities of these sort of like open stories is so powerful. And this is where, you know, you're thinking about we're sending our kids back to school. If you're in private school and public school is going to be happening, everybody's very anxious and parents are obviously anxious and for good reason. But th this is where, you know, it's very important as wise elders to our kids to not project our anxiety onto them and to just be quiet and listen to what they're struggling with. And when they bring to us something that is concerning to them, I don't want to wear a mask on, on my face all day. Is that an opportunity for a parent to sit there and go, do I have a story to share with my kid about a struggle I went through when I was a kid? Not do it the way I did it, but you know, I hear what you're saying because I remember in 1975, now right. you can't do it too often or the kids roll their eyes and go, oh, great, dad's <laughs> other story. But I, I do think that in a story, people can hear the lesson um, a little clearer than just telling people what to do. The next thing, uh, so here's a, here's a very, this is a very powerful one. So I think what I, because Iona has enough distance, first of all, um, Iona isn't Andy's mother. So whenever I talk to parents in my office, you know, I have to appreciate the fact that the reason why I am often a good therapist with their kids is not because I'm a good therapist. And, and parents miss this all the time. They look at me, how did you get through to my kid? And I look at them and I go, you know how? I don't love them. <laughs> Right. That, that's how I got through to your kid. Because right. if, you're, if your kid is selling pot in high school, I sleep just fine at night. Right. You know, I'm curious how much they got for it. I, I ask them questions. But if it was my kid, I'd want to throw them on their head out you know, the second floor window. So, right. I, so part of the magic is the distance, which is so counterintuitive. We think that the love and the fusion and how much you care about your kid, you know, is so important. It is, but it also blinds you from the, the child sitting right in front of you. So here's something Iona does, and I think it's because Iona is not Andy's mother. She doesn't buy into Andy's anxiety. 
and it allows Andy to feel comfortable with her anxiety and fears and just talks to Iona about whatever's on her mind. So for example, Andy says to Iona, proms are a stupid tradition. That's what Andy says, right? right. Now, if it was Andy's mother, she might say, what? What? You have to go to your prom. What are you talking about? All girls go to their prom. You know, right. And we get anxious because our kid might be alone or maybe they're a loser or, or, or they're not going to have a partner in life. What does Iona do? Iona, very quickly with a little, just a little bit of a, a, a lightness to this says, you know, Andy, you could say life is also a stupid tradition. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what's, what's interesting about that is it's just a little bit of humor, a, a reframe, right? To basically, uh, I think what Iona is saying, she doesn't say this, but I think what's happening here is what Iona is doing is she's saying, Andy, you're scared. You're afraid. I get it. We're all afraid. But you know what? If, if we're going to live by our fear alone, then you might as well bow out of life because all traditions are dumb then. And if you're going to let your fear guide everything that you do, just stay in your house and don't leave. Now, Iona doesn't say this, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. Kind of like your father, Andy. Right. If you want to live by your fear and anxiety, look at your dad who can't get out of bed in the morning right. and is still pining for a woman that left him 20 years ago. So it, it's a very quick scene, but I thought it was a powerful scene. And anything yeah, you want to come in with, Ellie? I think that's so interesting also, because then what you're saying is, you know, if you're going to choose to wear the lenses of fear, then everything's going to seem stupid or banal or boring or, you know, idiotic or whatever term you need to use to like deny the power of that particular experience because you're afraid of it. So I think it's an interesting, you know, I think it's a great way to think when our kids either do the eye rolling or, you know, oh, that's just stupid, you know. Well, is it just really dismissing it or are they wearing a lens of fear right now? And, and can we notice that rather than getting triggered by their saying that something we think is important is stupid? Because then exactly. again, like you said, that's our anxiety rather than recognizing, oh, they're dismissing it because they're freaked out by it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. The next one that I have down here is... Um, I have no idea what I wrote here. Let's see. Have enough business to be joyful. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So, you know how sometimes our kids come home and they're excited about something, but either it scares us, like they're excited about something and either it makes us uncomfortable in some way. And so we can't celebrate the joy of what our children are bringing home because we are getting anxious ourselves. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I know I have. Uh, yeah, I think it comes up a lot. And I hear this from a lot of parents, like when the kids are excited to audition for a play or try out for a team. And what you're thinking as a parent is, oh, my gosh, what if they don't make it? Right? What if they don't get onto the team? What if they don't make it into the play? So do I just fully embrace and support their excitement? Or do I kind of prepare them for potentially being let down? Exactly. Actually, that's a great setup, because that's exactly what happens here. Andy. Andy is finally going to the prom with, uh, uh, I forget his name, Andrew McCarthy. What's his name in the film though? Uh, Blaine. 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 The appliance. <laughs> sorry? The ducky calls it an appliance name. <laughs> yeah. You know what was so funny, by the way? An appliance name. Yeah. You know what was so interesting? Remember when Blaine shares Andy's photo in the computer screen? Yeah. In Pretty and Pink? And then he shares his? Right. That's pretty bloody advanced for 19. <laughs> I was watching. It shows like this little graphic of it going right. to like the next picture. Yeah. And I was thinking first, how did he get her picture? Like, I didn't have that in high school. Uh, yeah. I mean, even if I, 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 I wouldn't even know how to do it now. In that, like, well, that's just a, Chicago anyway. in 2020. <laughs> yeah. A little Bill Gates. Um, so, uh, okay. So here's the thing. Andy is being asked to the prom by the wealthy guy that for all intents and purposes should break her heart, right? I mean, that's, that's all. And if it was Andy's mother or father, they might be like, sweetie, don't get your hopes up. You know, he's a boy on the other side of the tracks. They're not our people. Right. Okay. But what does Iona do? I, Iona hugs her and says, oh, sweetie, you're going to be beautiful. You're going to, and I don't think it was a cheering pom-pom out of Iona's anxiety. She genuinely felt joy and love for Andy. And a wise elder, a, you know, when, when you adopt the position of a wise elder, you know, a Rebbe, a therapist, a teacher, a grandparent, 
they're distant enough from the person that they don't get too caught up in what their pain will be or what their pleasure will be, but they can appreciate joy for the purity of joy's sake. And I think that was so, uh, so beautiful. And I have to say, this is a challenge for me with my kids because sometimes what my kids are all excited about is a YouTube video they saw. And I got to tell you something, they show it to me and I'm like, I don't get this. <laughs> Why is this so, you know, um, and it's a cultural divide. It takes me a lot of effort and I fail more than I succeed to find the patience to sit down and listen, you know, I mean, especially during coronavirus, we're around our kids all the time. Uh, it, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, appreciate a cultural uh, gap where I'm sure my parents, look, you know, look, when I brought home Motley Crue show the devil album with black nail polish and they had all the hair and I showed it to my mom or my dad, they, what they probably saw right. Right, was I'm in jail. In, in two years, right? They couldn't, they wouldn't, you know. For sure. So um, it's very hard. It's very hard to, you know, to, to find the space for our kids um, and, and sit with their joy. And I think the other side of it, which is it's so beautiful that she was so excited for her, no holds barred. You know, I think the, um, you know, one of my mentors is so able to do that, like just so able to be absolutely excited and trusting that things will be good. And I think for me, one of the challenges in that is I always have that voice that's saying, but what if this happens and maybe this will happen and maybe I shouldn't get too excited or like my whole shtick. And I think it's so interesting having reflected back to me this untethered, unbothered uh, excitement. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, things will be great. And that comes because they're an elder. They have experienced that yeah, things can also be great, right? Sometimes wisdom knows that this too shall pass, but sometimes wisdom knows like, yeah, things can work out really well. And I, yeah. and I see very often, you know, how much I don't model that for my kids sometimes out of my own anxiety, like not wanting them to get too excited because then when things aren't good, they won't be as crushed. But I think there's something so valuable in modeling for our kids that, yeah, things actually can be great and can work out because you need to have that voice also. But it's a hard voice to cultivate. You know, there's a, I forget who this was. Um, uh, if I think of the name, I'll send it to you. And we can post the, the actual quote. It's, it's one of the thought leaders in the therapy that I do. He made a quote. He, he said something that was pretty controversial, but I think, uh, I think it was done with... Um, a bit of tongue in cheek, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. And basically what he said was that if parents could just learn to get out of the way of their kids, their kids will be fine. And, and, and of course, his parents were like, get out of the way. Like they'll end up on drugs. But I think- But I said, am the way. Yeah, exactly, that's right, that's right. That's right, I'm the Derek, right? Um, I, think, I think what he was saying is exactly what you were saying, is that parents out of, the, out of love, and it comes from love, out of love comes worry. That was the talk that I, we gave at the JFI LE back last year um, in 2019. Out of love comes worry. And with worry comes a projection of our worry and anxiety onto our kids. And it yeah. robs them of their ability to, to fall, scrape their knee, get back up, learn the lesson and keep going. So parents either over or under respond often to these things with our kids. So pay attention to that, I would say, with parents going forward for this year. Um, it's, it's going to be a very, um, I think it's going to be a turbulent year. I, I personally would not make any predictions. I know people are making predictions. I have no idea what's going to happen, what's coming right. down the pike, uh, both in technology and the medical world and how coronavirus is going to play itself out. No one knows. But one thing I know for sure, um, if we can learn to respond to our children's problems, ages and stages, ages and stages, course, if we can learn to respond to what actually they're struggling with and not throwing onto them what we think they should be struggling with, I think it's going to be a, a, a much more calm year, a meaningful year than um, uh, helping them anticipate all the scary things that are going to happen. Right. Um, I, and, and, I, and unfortunately, at least on Facebook, um, I see a lot of that uh, going yeah. on. Um, okay. In let's, fact, uh, let's, actually, yeah. Avram, there's a, there is a question in the chat that yeah. someone wants to know, like she's saying that her daughter is saying that she wants to, she doesn't want to go to school in person. She wants to be on Zoom because it looks like she's been placed in a class with kids that she doesn't know as well as her friends. Like she's been with the same kids since kindergarten and now she's in a class with girls that she kind of knows but aren't really her friends. And so her daughter's saying, I don't want to go to school in person. I want to go to school, go to school on Zoom. 
um, and she's and the kid's 13. So so again, how do you um, like how do you navigate that in what we're saying as the wise elder, seeing that your child is having a response to a particular situation? How do we apply this these ideas in this situation, or what's one of the ways? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's important just to acknowledge that um, one of the greatest parental anxieties, this is universal, I see this across culture and religion, is that my kid's going to wake up one day and go, I'm not going to school. And what exactly do you do with a 15-year-old, for example? They're right. bigger than you, they're stronger than you, right? You don't want child protection to come to your home because you've manhandled your child. <laughs> so what do you do? So first of all, uh, a couple of things. Um, number one, I think it's important to hear out your kid. Okay, to not take what they're saying as the fact, but it's right. a feeling. It's a feeling that I don't want to go to school. Okay, so you don't want to go to school. Okay, well, number one, what I often, when I'm working with parents in these situations, now I'm not talking about where the kid hasn't gone to school for a week because that, um, you know, my, my wife and I have talked about this uh, because my wife's a child psychiatrist. So we've talked about this before um, in terms of cases we're working on. That can get complex. And I'm talking about a kid who hasn't gone to school for two weeks. I'm not talking about that situation. It's a different situation. We could maybe dedicate a show to that. I'm talking about the kid who's anxious about going back to the first day of school for a myriad of reasons. They have a pimple. They're scared of COVID. They don't like the kids in their class, on and on. This is an excellent opportunity to help your child troubleshoot their own problem. And I would say that kids can do this, I would say probably grade two, maybe even grade one and up. Now that doesn't mean to say they get to decide what they're going to do. Let me be clear. It's important for parents to take a leadership role in terms of what they are willing and what they are not willing to put up with in their home. Okay. So it might sound something like, um, okay, I, no, I, I hear what you're saying. So, share, so what exactly is going on? Well, there's this kid and they don't like me and I don't like them and I'm scared of this. Okay, well, let, let's, let's, let's troubleshoot this. What are your options? I don't know, mom. I don't know. What right, I, do? I want to stay home. My right, option exactly. is go to school or don't go to school. Right, so this is where a parent could say, you want to stay home. Well, that's not an option actually, but I'm open to a whole bunch of others. So it's a very calm, it's, it's what we call stating your principles to your kids. The families who get into trouble with this is that they, they're not clear about their own principles. So the kids aren't clear about their principles. Right. right? And I think this year is unique because in, on one hand, Zoom is an option. That's right? right. So then if you're not clear about I, why you want your kid to be in school in person or why you don't feel comfortable with them staying home on Zoom, like then it's hard to help them navigate what the right decision is because you have to figure out where you stand on the thing first. Right, and this is why the parent has to, has to get to the, the core issue here of what's going on. What you don't want to do is you don't want to use the excuse of COVID and Zoom uh, uh, as a way to exacerbate uh, this child's anxiety right? Because then it'll just morph. COVID will be resolved, but then there's another bugaboo where they can stay on Zoom. So this is where you have to try, and Ellie, it's so hard because whenever I talk about this, I'm a parent too. I get anxious right. too. So yeah. this is not easy, right. okay? This, this work isn't easy, but it's critical. So number one, what is the problem here? So I believe a wise elder, a parent's role, is to help a child figure out their own problem, okay? Their own problem. A wise elder serves as a container in a calm way to allow the child to come up with options. And then the parent gets to decide, what would you like me to do about that? So let's say the child says, can you set up a meeting with the principal and me? Now, if there's another parent in the picture, this is where you could say, let me think about that. It's not a bad idea. Let me go speak to dad, mom, whatever, and, and I'll get back to you. I think it's absolutely legitimate at that point to say, you know, I spoke to, you know, I spoke to whatever, your dad, your mom, um, yeah, let's set up a meeting with the principal and maybe we can come up with a different solution, okay? The kid feels seen, heard, and understood. What the actual solution is doesn't make a difference because the kid feels like their problem is seen or heard. What I generally caution parents not to do is to over or underreact. Overreacting is, I don't want to hear about it, you can't do it, and, and they get all anxious and, and then the kid doesn't feel seen, heard, or understood and then goes to Reddit and starts asking, <laughs> asking anonymous strangers about what they should do. Right. Under, underreacting is basically saying to the kid, do whatever you want, I just, I'm too, uh, you want to stay home, sure, uh, uh, sure, just, you know, uh, stay home. Um, and, and, and basically what you're, you're just sort of kindling onto the fire of anxiety, okay? 
The last thing I would say is that generally these things, when I say these things, I'm not talking about this parent, I'm talking about me, you and everybody else. These things just don't pop out of thin air. They just don't pop out. These things usually have a chronic nature to them. So it's an opportunity now to work on something that likely has been under the surface and maybe the clustering of stress and anxiety in this family that we're all going through is rise, raising something to the surface. And by the way, 13 is a great age to do this because it's, it's, it's those tween years, you're just entering adolescence. So this is something you do want to sort of find a calm way to talk about peer-to-peer -peer relationships, problem solving, and that essentially, you know, the message is, we're here for you, we will listen to you, we won't do everything for you, Right. right. We won't do. And, and Ellie, I'll tell you, I, I, I have worked with families where the parents get so anxious and they're so worried about their kids. They just start buying them things. You know, OK, go to school and I'll buy you this. Go to school. And they do this like, like uh, quit pro negotiations. Right. Stuff, and, it, and, it, and it creates a problem down the road that, that's very hard to get out. So once again, assume that there are no easy solutions. Assume that there is no perfect solution here. But the one thing you could take solace in, either you're going to be a container of calm and good thinking for your kid. Okay. Or you're going to increase the anxiety and create a longer problem down the road. So sometimes that short term solution you come up with just to get the kid to school for the first day right, yeah. creates a longer term problem. So I'm open to any other questions or um, So she actually has a follow up, which I think is kind of interesting. So what she said is that part of the challenge is that it sounds like um, uh, the, the person who's asking the question is uh, divorced. So one parent is saying it's fine for you to just do zoom and the person who's asking the question is saying like i don't know if that's what i agree with so what do you do when parents do you believe in the parental united front or are there other options um, okay so this this is where i just this is where um <laughs> i think it's very important to understand that uh our kids are the canary in the coal mine for unresolved issues in our families. We have talked about this, Ellie, over and over and over again. Right. You know, when I'm working in my office and parents are divorcing, okay, what I say to them is how you divorce is how you're going to both remarry going forward and how you're going to co-parent this kid, okay? And a lot of parents, when they're getting divorced, what they do is, I just got to get, I just got to get out of this. I just got to get out and then we'll deal with it after. And, you know, I could see the seedlings of where these problems are going to be. Okay, because once you're out of each other's space now and the kid is in the other home, well, the power, you, you've got no, you've got very little power now. So this gets very complex. So I don't have any simple solutions. What I would say is whatever way these parents could come to a place without the child and say, you know, we're gridlocked on this and this is not good for our kid. Because if we can at least come to a situation with, it's a, it's a term that I shared in, in talks, Ellie, with you, of I could live with this, meaning that I don't love your suggestion, ex-spouse, right. and I don't know you. I know you don't love my suggestion, but can we find something that we can live with, where my principles aren't being sacrificed and your principles aren't being sacrificed? It's only the parents who are, have so much animosity towards each other that they're not willing to budge. And now you're talking about something that is not an adolescent problem. Right. You're talking something that is a leadership problem. Well, I and think that's interesting yeah. too, because then as leaders are you modeling problem solving and relationship solving, right? So if you're not modeling that, how are we going to expect our kids to that's then beautiful. go to school and model problem solving and relationship solving if that's what they're concerned about? So I think that's Ellie, that, one of the biggest challenges. That's beautiful. That, that's, that's, that's much, much more eloquent than, than how I phrase it. That's, exa <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, um, now, by the way, I am not suggesting this parent or, or what their, uh, their um, ex-partner is doing uh, falls into the camp of not modeling good leadership. These are right. tough things because each parent will react to this child differently um, uh, based on their own experience when they were in high school and their parents and how they dealt with, I'm not going to school. You know, it's interesting. Um, in my house, uh, uh, my wife uh, and I both grew up in homes where it wasn't even a thought we wouldn't go to school, but for very different reasons. You know, I think in, in, um, in my house, it was absolute fear of my father, absolute white knuckled fear. That's how I got to school. I wouldn't say that's great, but that's how I got to school. <laughs> right. My wife, my wife had a much more simple um, solution, which was you put a thermometer in your mouth, the Ferris Bueller thing. If you had a fever, you stay home. If you didn't have a fever, you're going to school. Right. And it was done in a very calm way. And everybody in the house knew what that rule was. So um, 
I, you know, when we marry, I think there's an assumption that when we marry, because we've agreed to marry or divorce, that somehow we have an agreement in terms of how we function our lives. That's just not true. We're different people. We've grown up in different families with different mores and blah, 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 blah. So what I would say is there's two things likely going on here. And by the way, I don't even know this family. So I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm talking high level. I have no right. idea. I'd have to have a good family history before I even recommend a granular, you know, idea. Right. About this. From a high level, Ellie, I think what you were saying actually is the most important, which is that what's likely going on here is if the, if the kid sees the parents where they, they have trouble making decisions at an adult level about um, even either talking to each other or doing some sort of a calm way of brainstorming around this, it's very hard to tell the kid then. You know, I'll just very quick story. I think I've mentioned this before. I was working in addictions in Vancouver. I've mentioned this story before, and a, a mother brings her child in for a, a smoking pot. So I bring the kid in, he comes into my office, and he stinks like pot. So I say to him, do you smoke pot? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, do you smoke pot a lot? He's like, yeah. I'm like, are you high? I'm like, are you high right now? He's like, yeah, pretty, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty high. I'm like, great. Okay, bring your mother in. The, 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 the session was about 30 seconds. So he brings his mother in. And she sits down. And what I was going to say to her was that, look, he's not interested in changing. This is a waste of time. But I smell in the office alcohol. The whole, and we, lived, we had a small office in Burnaby, BC. So the whole right. office stunk like out. So I said to her, I'm sorry, I just want to ask, are you under the, the influence right now of, of alcohol? And she breaks down. And she's been struggling with that. And of course, I have Rahmanis for her. I mean, she really right. was struggling. And she was talking about her. She's tried AA and she's single and she lost her job. I really had Rahmanis for her. But what I said to her essentially was, you know, spend more time focusing on your addiction right now. And right. I guarantee you, I guarantee you any progress you make there will pay off in spades versus schlepping your kid to all sorts of specialists. Yeah. Because if you, you know, if you're coming home intoxicated every day, it's really hard to, to tell your kid not to go to school high. And so I think what you're saying is very, very important. Um, and um, I hope these, you know, the, these, these parents can find it within themselves to just, you know, right. speak to their kid. What's the real problem here? Brainstorm with them and let the child, she's 13, by the way, she can call her principal, she can do this and she can say, I don't feel comfortable. Can we come up with something or have a, a, right. a, a meeting with the parents? But you don't want this to drag on to the middle of the year where it becomes a really big problem. Yeah, I, th I love what you're saying also, because I think when you spoke about the, the mother and the son with these two different examples of addiction, same thing. Like if you're addicted to being anxious, if you're addicted with food, if you're addicted, whatever it is that you're kind of caught in, and then suddenly your kids are displaying a similar addictive or like grounded behavior, it is so counterintuitive to deal with yourself first. But, um, but time and again, you know, I, I realize with myself, when I deal with my own fear, the fear in my kids goes down, right? And when I deal with my own, you know, anger, you know, my, the, the anger goes down. And I think it's such a powerful model that as parents, we don't realize how we as individuals cope um, really has such a powerful effect on the whole family. Yeah. That's I such a message that that's been lost through that cultural zeitgeist of anyone over, you know, 30 doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. You know, I think, Ellie, I don't know how, I don't know when we can do this. I'm not even sure what the timing would be, but you know, the idea of, uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up uh, another piece of wisdom from David because da David, by the way, just, to, I mean, it's, it's, it's public. It's well, he, he was divorced. He, he remarried. And so he had some very interesting things to say about divorce. One of the things he used to share with me, and I never heard this before I met David, um, is that he would coach couples that they're divorcing that it is critical, critical to get to a point where you can find a loving way to say goodbye, which, which, which bodes, and David was Jewish, I don't know if he knows this, but bodes very nicely with the idea of in Judaism that it's a tragedy, that there should be tears shed, not verbal daggers being thrown, that, that, that there should be tears, that, that it should be an understanding that I have grown from this experience and I will go into the next one with wisdom of how I want to do it differently. So David, right. David would really try to help the couples in his office move from litigious warring with each other to can you find a loving way to say you know we gave this a good shot we spent these years together i release you now to be free to live the life please offer it to me and together in that freedom we will raise mentions okay unfortunately you know and, and it really is unfortunate um uh too many people that i work with are being coached to either, you know, get everything you can or like, you know, they're the devil, you're the angel. 
And the kids are left in the crossfire of this kind of stuff. So there's all yeah. this unfinished business that has to get played itself out. So I, I really would, you know, uh, uh, you know, encourage parents, not just this family, all families, to think about married or divorced. When a kid is being symptomatic, anxiety, depression, cutting, drugs, whatever, it is a symptom generally that something is amiss in the family, yeah. in the family. And it's a gift. It's a gift to work on a knot that's there. It's not easy right? It's not, I don't envy these parents. It's not easy, right? right? But it, but it ain't going anywhere. So either one, and by the way, so one, one last thing, it doesn't take two people in a family to rise up to that leadership position. It takes one person when there's a divorce. It doesn't take two. I've, I've rarely seen it being two. It takes one person to rise above the immaturity and, and steady themselves on principle. And you don't have to be on the same page. Ellie, you don't have to be right. on the same page because you know right. it's sometimes one partner is so immature, so vindictive. What are you going to do? You're going to wait around for 15, 20, 30 years until they, you know, until they come around. Sometimes you yeah, can't. Yeah, and look, you can be in a workplace for 15, 20 years and not be on the same page with everyone. But if you're mature and you're a leader, then you figure out how to make the company work, even if everyone isn't on the same page. And I That's think right. Yeah, I think and I'll tell Ellie, I'll I've had, you know, I've had parents say to me, but when my kid goes to my partner's home, they tell them horrible things about me, right? And what I say to them is, you know, what I, what I say to them is, and you see this happening in the political sphere too. What right. I say is, you know, people are pretty good at intuiting immaturity and anxiety. Yeah. And if you can just steady the course and not talk badly about your partner. So let's say your kid comes home, right? Your kid comes home and they're like, you know, um, my dad said that you are this, that, and the other thing. And so you sit there and you don't overreact. You go, you know, your father was right about some of those things. It's mm -hmm. something I've got to work on. And then the stuff that's false, like, well, that's his opinion. But you know what? We all have opinions. Right. And you keep it calm and you let it go. M my coaching with these parents is if you can steady yourself like that until the kids are, I would say, 13, 14, 15, they don't believe it anymore. They don't believe it anymore because they can observe through osmosis about the true character. Ah, but if the, uh, if the other partner is saying dropping truth bombs, it's important to own that. Yeah. So if you, can, if you can steady yourself and rise above the din of immaturity, mm. the kids are going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. And so, what a beautiful role modeling for them to be in any situation where people might deliver hard truths in a way that's really uncomfortable. You know, I think that's just, it, it just it has implications even beyond the family and beyond relationships to be able to function in the world and have someone you really don't like say things about you that might be true. And what That's right. Exactly. Um, a couple of uh, things here, it sort of piggybacks nicely into what we're talking about. Um, Iona uses self-deprecating -dep humor. Yeah. And <laughs> she's, she's able to make, yeah, well, well, she's, you know, she, she talks about her relationships with Andy as these failed, you know, multiple relationships, but she doesn't do it in a depressive um, hopeless right. way because she actually at the end of the film right she has that who's she dating the pet store owner yeah yeah, yeah. right he like dresses up she's like I look like a mom right that's right yeah, yeah. so she, she's full of hope but she also knows how to make fun of herself and I think that when we can adopt uh, a lighter tone to all this kind of stuff right and and poke fun at ourselves our kids hear us better Mm. Instead of trying to prop ourselves up as know-it-alls or, you know, our kids can hear ourselves. Our, what our kids hear is that we're just human beings. We're just freaking human beings trying to do the best that we can. And it's hard. Living can be hard sometimes. And I think that, you know, Iona really models sort of uh, that, that lesson, which is make fun of yourself, you know, but do the best you can. Um, I, I think that's, um, that she did a good job. Okay, last one. Um, now, here's, here's a very interesting one. So this, this is for the parents who have kids who are older. Um, so these are for like the, the clients in my office where their kids are 17, 18 and they're moving on. And what they'll say to me is they either get really sad because they feel they're losing their kids to campus or, or whatever, or, or they feel like my work is done. Like, get rid of them. Get out. <laughs> I'm done. So one of the things that, um, that, that Iona does that's so beautiful. Okay. Is that she asks Andy's, advice and opinions and fashion. Throughout the film, Iona will turn to Andy and say, what do you think? And do you like this and this? Iona isn't so full of herself that she always has to operate at a Yoda-like top-down mm. approach with Andy. And yeah. you can see Andy, you know, Andy, Andy, I think, has benefited from her wise, uh, Iona's wise eldership 
to grow into a young woman herself with her own thoughts and feelings and share them with with Iona with, that Iona values. And when I tell what I you know when I'm working with parents, um, what I encourage them to do is you have to move beyond the way you were treating your kids when they were seven to a different a different relationship. It doesn't mean you're not a wise elder. You're a different type of wise elder to your 18, 19, and 20 year old. And this is where um, a father can go out with his son or daughter who, who's starting a commerce program and really listen to them if they have suggestions about how to run the family business. And not just sit there and go, I've been around 40 years. Yeah, you're, you're a pitcher in your first year of university. Right. And so you're, you're moving what David used to call, you're moving more to, to a peer-to-peer relationship with a very clear understanding that you, you have the wisdom of many years over your kid. Your kid will always need to know that that hierarchy exists. So uh, I thought yeah, that, um, I, I, love that. Very well. I really love that too, because wisdom acknowledges good knowledge, right? Like wisdom can handle somebody else knowing something new or better or in a more intricate way than you and can like add that to your repertoire. So I love that. I think that's that's such a powerful model for ourselves and for our kids. And and I also wonder, you know, when going back to the original example we were talking about where Andy was able to turn down Steph, right? The cool James Spader character. And and her father is like barely functioning and her mother isn't present. So where does she get like this fortitude to be kind of strong and sassy in the face of this cool guy and it seems to me she gets it from Iona you know Mm -hmm. that she sees Iona model like you know not giving a crap about how she looks or how people care about her and that you can simply say to somebody like yeah gotta go bye click (laughs) you know and and so I think you know really is a testament to what you're saying which is even if you don't have it at home if you can cultivate relationships and find the wise elders it will prop you up and and give you those role models um, that you need. Yeah, and and which which is why um, I think that it's important to, uh, once, you know, things open up in our uh, our society, uh, while I I think that it is important to sustain and fund programs, youth programs, um, you know, in the Jewish community, USY, NCSY, these type of things, um, wise elders, could be someone with five more years experience than you. It's one of the mm-hmm. reasons why kids will come from sleepaway camp and form a, a real strong attachment with their counselor or right. an art teacher. Those kind of relationships can sustain a life course for a young person for years and years and years. Um, I also think that's why it's important uh, to cultivate family stories and to have Zadies and Bubbies and aunts and uncles, when you have a family get together, to share stories. Um, not everything, not everything, um, that's important comes out of the ashes of Auschwitz, for example. It could be as simple as we were in Winnipeg, we had a small store, we had to sell the store, we moved to Calgary. You know, it's like, it's, it's the mundane, but it's your story. And, mm-hmm. and it's very, very important with young people. The, the data is, is very clear about this. Young people that don't hear the, 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 the stories and the journeys of their own family will seek out Hollywood stories to supplement those stories. Wow. They're never as good as the, the true blood and sweat of, of our narrative of our stories. Wow. Um, and, uh, so, and by the way, just a, a little uh, thing, we can add a link in your Facebook page. There's a wonderful project, Ellie, I think we've talked about it before, called StoryCorps out of Love the U.S. It. Yeah. If you want to I know, hear I think the power, we both talked about just crying the entire time we're listening to these stories. It's just yeah. a wonderful project. So um, I, I would encourage parents, you, you know, if, if, the, if the, um, the wise elder concept is something that is, I, I hear something. Ellie, do you no. hear something? No. That's so interesting. I'm hearing, I'm hearing a TV show in the background. Um, <laughs> That is so odd. Uh, look, hold on. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. No, okay, it's very odd. I don't know where it's, where it's coming from. <laughs> Anyways, Ellie, wise elder, Iona, fantastic. Amazing. I'm so happy we talked about her, and I can't believe we talked about her for so long and not one outfit came up, but fine. We'll do that next time. Um, okay, next week, um, should we continue or should we move on? Next movie. I'm thinking we move on. Um, what do you say, just because I purchased it, uh, which is the one with the drummer? That's your favorite one. Oh, Some Kind of Wonderful. 
why don't we use some kind of wonderful? Okay, amazing. Oh, there's so much good meat in there about like the main character and his relationship with his dad who keeps pushing him to go to college. And oh, yeah, there's right. some really good stuff in there. Okay, good. I love it. All right. So good luck to all the parents, by the way, <laughs> sending your kids back to school next week. Good luck. Thank you so much, Avram. We'll see everybody next week. If you get a chance to watch some kind of wonderful this week while you're dealing with the madness of sending our kids back to school, we'll see you all next Thursday. Avram, thank you. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye.